Good morning, Walk Church. It is good to finally get to see you face to face. I want you to know you have been prayed for for years from Mobile, Alabama, and we thank God for you because you're on the front line of a move of God that began over 2,000 years ago, and it is heading toward a definite conclusion, and God has saved you and brought you into his kingdom for just such a time as this. And I'm so grateful for each and every one of you. And I, just, I bring a blessing to you from Redemption Church. And, and I want to say to you that uh, I cannot think of two greater leaders, both in the city of Las Vegas or in the United States of America, than Haydn and Nina Radner. Would you give the Lord praise for them? I, I love the theme for, of Deepen. Uh, I have hiked the Grand Canyon twice. I apologize for this. Yeah, we can go handheld. I've hiked the Grand Canyon. Is this on? Yeah. I've hiked it twice, and my wife and I went through it uh, just a couple of years ago on a raft. That was an adventure. And, uh, and, and you know the Grand Canyon. It's a deep hole in the ground, right? How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Now, that's kind of a silly question out here, isn't it? I have to ask that in Alabama. Nobody raises their hand. But, but can I tell you something? It's one thing to go up. Matter of fact, millions of people every year go up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, look in, Take pictures. The average person stays 15 minutes. Now, you imagine driving all the way from Vegas to go over there, take a picture, hang around for 15 minutes. It's one thing to go to the Grand Canyon. It's another thing to hike the Grand Canyon. And when I think of deepen, I think of the whole concept of what it means to go deeper in Christ, deeper in his word. That is not a self-glorifying statement. It is a God-glorifying statement because I want to tell you something about hiking the Grand Canyon. It's hard work. you got to prepare. you got to get in. you got to go. There's danger. I almost lost my 13-year-old son in a gust of wind over a cliff in the Grand Canyon. My buddy that was hiking with my two sons and myself reached over, grabbed the back of his backpack right before he went over. I did not tell my wife about that for six months. That was a secret I needed to divulge, but not right away. <laughs> Open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 was written to explain what you and I need to know about God's gospel of grace. What we need to know about God's gospel of grace. It, it should not be read, it should not be read or understood apart from the reality of your struggles in life. Do not read the Word of God as if it's the idealistic standard for which you are trying to achieve. It is the reality of where you live every day. Nowhere does the Bible say that God will spare you from trouble. If we're going to go deeper, we've got to confront this issue. This week alone, two precious members of my church died overcome by COVID. I'll get back tomorrow to Mobile, and Monday morning I have funerals. People's marriages are unraveling in the midst of this crisis. Difficulty is all around us. Cancer diagnosis can be diagnosed, but sometimes can't even start the treatment because of this time we're in. There's depression and discouragement, and that's just among pastors, much less everybody else. Tommy Nelson's a preacher in North Texas who I love. Tommy said, the love of God will not separate you from suffering, and suffering cannot separate you from the love of God. 
So when we do suffer, questions naturally arise. Why me? Why this? Why now? Did I do something wrong? Is God punishing me? The most common question I hear in the area of suffering is somebody going through hard things, really hard things, will say, is God punishing me? So in this COVID-19 crisis, as a pastor, as a leader, I kind of feel like Joshua. In Joshua 3, 4, he says, for we have not passed this way before. We're in territory, folks, like we've never been before. Can I tell you something about our God? And his name is Jesus. And I love to talk about his name. Because where his name is, things happen. Where his name is spoken, lives are changed. Hearts are redirected. Marriages are healed. Victory is won over the nature of our own sinfulness. You see, there are questions that we ask in our lives that have the power to reorient our lives. I asked a question to to Kathy over 11 years ago that has totally reoriented our lives. I asked her to marry me. (laughs) And and she actually sent her a note. She didn't know I was in town. I I came for the very purpose of giving a ring to her. And so I went to a Einstein's bagel company across from where she worked. And I had them give her a note. I said, hey, go to Einstein's bagel. She went over there. They gave her the note. The note took her to another place, which took her another place. And finally took her to these massive crosses by the church she worked at. And there I was sitting with a ring, got on my knees and asked her to marry me. And thankfully, in that moment, she was under some form of delusion or deception, and she said yes. Hey, look at Romans 8.31. This is an amazing verse to go deeper. This is a verse I would challenge you to commit to memory. Paul asked this question. What then shall we say to these things? The troubles, the difficulties, the hardness of the times we live in. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In order to break down this passage, we've got to ask two questions. These are the kind of important questions that will alter the course of your life if you answer them. Here's the first one. Who is us in this sentence? And the second question is who is against us? So let's talk about both of those. Who's us? Look at that verse again. What shall we say to these things, whatever these things are that we're facing? If God is for us, who will be against us? The identity of us in this story, and by the way, not just because it's a popular television show a few years back, but this is us he's talking about. This is us. This is our life. This is our moment. This is our time. Don't don't pine for what used to be. And don't lose yourself in some imaginary world in the future. This is the reality that you and I live in. Let me say, let me ask this question. Do you think God is for you? Do you think God is for you? Do you think he's on your side? Do you think he seeks your best? Or do you think he's against you? I think the most natural thing for people to think Because by nature, we are all separated from God by our sins. Even the redeemed of God who know that their sins have been forgiven, that they've been right right with God, will oftentimes, especially in suffering, think something's wrong with me. That's why I'm going through this. Now let's look at the rest of the next verses before this. Look at verse 28. Because they answer the question that we've raised. Who is us? And he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. Stop there for a moment. That we might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is it's a clue. It's a clue when you're studying God's word. What is it a clue of? That God has saved you and is redeeming you and transforming you and sanctifying you that you might reach others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you would be the firstborn in your family. That you would be the firstborn at your company. That you would be the firstborn at your high school or school. That you would be the firstborn in your neighborhood. Okay, so hang with me. The firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also will and also glorified. A guy named Sinclair Ferguson invited a group of Czechoslovakian pastors to come to the United States for a conference. And he was busy, picked them up at the airport. There were five of them in his minivan. And he goes, oh, man, i got to stop and go by the grocery store. My wife told me to do this before we go to the conference. Well, they had never been in the United States, these Czechoslovakian pastors, and they had certainly never been in a grocery store. If you've ever traveled anywhere in the world, we have some very unique, wonderful, full places called grocery stores. Even when toilet paper was scarce, we still are better than most places on the face of the earth. Amen? So he took them to this grocery store, and they were stunned. He, passed, he looked around, and they were standing at the door. Their eyes were wide open. They said, we're not party members of the Communist Party. We're, we're not allowed to come into places like this. Only the higher echelon can have stores like this. And he said, no, this is America. Come on in. And as they went down the aisles, he saw them weeping. They, they were burst into tears. It was unconceivable to them that this was available for them. What is unconceivable to you? You say, man, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know how long I was there. You don't know how many warnings I had and how I refused to change until God's gospel got a hold of my heart. And so you're thinking, I'm disqualified. Oh, no, no, no. You're quite qualified according to this word of God. Who is us? Now, I want to point out some things because you need to know this for you. Let's break these words down. There's several that are powerful words that are mentioned here. Here's the first one is the word foreknowledge or foreknew. He said that God foreknew you. In other words, it means to know you before, to fix his regard upon you. Before you were ever exposed to the gospel, God knew you. Before, before you were a thought, a glimmer in your father's eye, whatever you were, God knew you. Why? Because he knows all things. You need to sit in that reality. You need to stop and think that before he created anything, he knew you. He knew that he would create you. He knew he would make you. He would make you with gifts and strengths, and sin would warp you. Yes, it would give you weaknesses to struggle with, but I'm telling you, God knows you. But then he says he predestined you. Now, this gets very controversial among the theological classes of our groups, our tribes, and our denominations. But it means that he determined beforehand, at its simplest, that God made up his mind in his perfect knowledge that you would exist, that he determined beforehand his purpose, his purpose and his predestination, he says here, is to conform you to his image. A lot of people waste a lot of time saying, well, who's predestined, who is it? Can I just tell you, you're not on that committee. 
That's a one-person committee, and God alone is on that committee. My job isn't to go around and tell people who is and who isn't. My job is to tell everyone there is a Savior who will save you, and he loves you with an everlasting love. That's what Walk Church is all about, is reaching people that God foreknew and predestined that you would share God's love with them and, and lead them to him and lead them to grow in him. You see, I, I, don't, I don't have all the answers to this doctrine that has caused so much controversy through the ages, but I know it's true because God said it. Now, if it's in the Word, we believe it. Here's the third word. That's the word called. This is good, and I've already referred to this, but when a person is called, what does it mean? It means that God's hand is on your life, that God first dealt with you because he has others he wants to deal with, that God has called every believer, not just the Radners, not just the staff at the church, not, not just Pastor Ed and Kathy. God has called every believer to be saved, yes, but to serve him, yes, to influence others for the gospel of Jesus Christ. John 6, no one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Why did God draw you? Because there's a unique influence that God has for your life. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It brings God pleasure when we simply live his gospel out with others. Here's the fourth word. It's the word justified. This is awesome. This is a legal term. You need to get this in your heart. When you accepted Christ as your Savior and your Lord, I'm going to tell you what happened to you. The Bible says in heaven a legal transaction took place. Literally, God looked at you and said, you're justified. And some people have said, some people have said justification means it's just as if I had never sinned. It is that, and it's more than that. It is a legal transaction that you trust that the God of heaven through his son Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross was so acceptable to God, so perfect in God's eyes, that he said, I will forgive them and treat them as if they've never sinned. The best way to understand the gospel for me is that Jesus Christ came into this world, and we just celebrated this at Christmas, didn't we? He came into this world to live the life I was supposed to live but failed to live and to die the death I deserved to die in my place. That is the gospel. And I must receive that truth, that tension. At the same time, both things are true. I'm a failed, I'm a sinner who has failed to meet God's perfect standard. But Christ came and met the perfect standard and died in my place. And the Bible says I'm justified. And then he says we're going to be glorified. This is the final stop and the destination that we're all on. And, and everybody resists it. We don't, want to, we don't want to think about this. But friends, this is the glory and, and, and I want to say this, if you, C.S. Lewis said, if you could get through this life avoiding pain and struggle, I don't think you can, but if you could, you would regret it in heaven. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Lewis said, everything will be reversed. And things that are painful here will become more glorious there. Come on, don't shout me down. Things that are painful and a struggle here will be more glorious there. So I'm not saying we should ask for pain. I'm not saying we should ask for suffering. That, that's ludicrous. Don't pick a fight just to get your, 
your nose bloody. Listen to me. No, no. We don't look for trouble, but trouble's always coming after the child of God. And listen to me. When trouble comes, understand, we can endure it because of the glory he has promised. That he's going to reverse all things. So, why is it this isn't very appealing to most people who claim the name of Christ? Why is it that we aren't encouraged by this to go deeper? Some people are afraid to go deeper because they know the secret is that they're going to encounter struggle. You're going to have struggle with your own sin. You're going to have struggle with family. You're going to have all kinds of struggles. People are going to call you a Jesus freak. People are going to say you're, you're not this. And then others, and I think the temperature of our nation may well be heading in this direction, that to name Christ means that we will be, we will be canceled. I say, let it be. For greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. And even if we're canceled, God has the power. And you read the Old Testament. I'm preaching through Daniel right now. Daniel was a part of a cancel culture too. And Daniel, it, no matter what they did to him, or Joseph in the book of Genesis, no matter what his family did to him, no matter what Pharaoh did to him, no matter what happened, whether he was raped, he always ascended because God was with him. Every time it mentions Daniel or an epic in the story of Daniel, it always has this phrase, and God was with him. My friend, God is with you. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great pastor, theologian, said the most, out, the most astonishing thing about this passage that we're reading is that Paul speaks of the future glorification in the past tense. It reminds us of who our God is. He sees everything from the beginning to the end. He sees everything live right now. And that's why, child of God, if you're in the middle of a very discouraging moment in your life, I'm telling you, turn your eyes upon him because he sees the whole thing. And he sees that that thing you're going through right now is leading to something far more glorious. And it's all about him. It's all about him. I've got to move on. First question, who is us? Second question, then who is against us? Let's read that verse again, Romans 8, 31. For what shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul is, uh, is here, he, he's not saying a believer should always be loved by everyone. Paul is just saying there's no opposition that can thwart the purpose of God in your life. Who can be against us? So you say, well, uh, if you're asking that question, I'll say out loud, my boss is against me. Uh, my angry mate is against me. My ex is against me. And they got together with another one of my exes, and they are all against me now. My neighbor's against me. I got a lawsuit dogging me. I, I've got health problems. My kids. Persecution. Every day I pray for the persecuted church around the world. Do you realize in America still, and you hear people complaining and whining, you know, about, well, we're getting this opposition in America. Oh, my friend. There are people whose families beat them to death for converting from one religion to Jesus. There are people that are, have official governments coming against them. You will lose your job. You will lose your place to live to follow Christ. And beloved, listen to me, brothers and sisters all over the world are paying a high price and doing it with joy for the hope that they found in Christ Here's, the Bible doesn't promise we won't have troubles, as I've already said, but it promises here that no opposition will overcome you. 
Many of us are spending time, money, and worry to avoid difficulty. But God is your better protector. Notice now, Paul outlines these troubles with the word who, and he does it four times in this passage. He outlines the kind of troubles we, we see. You see, I, I, I want you to see these, these four troubles that he mentions. First of all, he says, who will oppose me? Who will oppose me? When God is for you, it doesn't really matter who is opposing you. If it's the ruler or a despot or even demons, just read your New Testament and see how demons reacted to Jesus. He said, hush, and they hushed. Get out, and they got out. You say, you believe demons are real? <laughs> I've been a Baptist preacher for a long time, and most of you know demon encounters I've had have been in deacon meetings, but i got to just be honest with you. <laughs> That's not true. I was a church planner in Tucson, Arizona. I grew up on a strip called the Miracle Mile. Where'd they get that name? And they... It was, it was the roughest. There were drug deals going down. And my parents had a ministry in that motel that they ran. And we, we constantly dealt with this stuff. When I got to seminary, I had professors saying, well, now, technically, we believe these were psychological problems. They really weren't demon possession. And I go, man, you didn't grow up where I grew up. And so, yes, if the Bible says it, I believe it. Amen. I don't always understand the things I believe, but I understand that God is the truth, and in him there's no darkness and there's no lie. A man who was the chaplain of the U.S. Senate named Peter Marshall back in the 1940s and 50s, an amazing Presbyterian pastor, was asked to come to the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, to speak in a chapel service. He had a message prepared, and when he got there on that Sunday morning, before he stood up to preach, God just told him, don't talk about what you came to talk about. I want you to get up and talk about dying. And he had a family in his church that just went through this process of having to say goodbye. A mother's son died of cancer and the pain of it. And he talked about the question this boy, this little boy asked his mother. He goes, Mom, what's it like to die? And then Peter Marshall explained what it's like to die for a child of God and what happens next. And all the cadets that were there listening to him were held in rapt attention. When Peter Marshall finished, he prayed a blessing upon him. He got in his car, and he was heading back to his home in Washington, D.C., from Annapolis, Maryland, when he turned on the radio on December 7, 1941, and Pearl Harbor had just been attacked. And Peter Marshall had spiritually prepared a generation of men who would many die at sea on how to die. Before the Civil War, there was this couple who lived across the street from West Point, across the street, across the Hudson River, and, and the plebes would get in a boat, go over and pick them up every Sunday. They would bring them over to West Point, and they would teach a Sunday school class for these young plebes, these young soldiers. And these two sisters wrote the song, Jesus Loves Me, so that they could teach it to these soldiers who would be called to Gettysburg, who would be called to battles in the Civil War, and many of them died. Are you ready to die? It, it, this is so important. Why would God send his son only to leave you to struggle in despair? Why would God send his son only to leave it up to you to figure out how to do this? 
God has given you a pastor. God has given you leaders who are bound to the Word of God to make it known to you so that you can go deeper with the Lord. Do more than go up, spend 15 minutes at church on Sunday, take your picture, and then go home and live your life as you please. No, 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 friends. You were called for something more than this. So, who will oppose me? Here's a second question Paul raises, who will accuse me? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's what you are. You are chosen by God. We just went through an election, but God chose you. He said, it is God who justifies. There are people that are hard to please in this life. Amen? Don't look at them right now. Just look at me, all right? But they are hard to please. Have you ever been accused falsely of something? Have you ever it hurts, doesn't it? Matter of fact, it can terrify you. Some of you, just at the thought of that question, could spend a lot of time now not listening to what I'm about to say, thinking, oh, man, I, that, that would terrify me. I'd never want to go through that. Did you know that the Bible says that Satan is an accuser? He's the accuser of the brethren, the Bible says, and that includes the cistern too, Okay. Anybody who names the name of Jesus has a 24-hour accuser who will accuse you to your own conscience. I just got to tell you, there are days I wake up in the morning, and he's already working. He goes, man, you blew it yesterday. You, you misspoke. You shouldn't have said this. You should have done that. Why are you so lazy? Why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you like so-and-so? Why aren't you like hiding Radner? That's usually what he says to me. I, I said, I can't wear skinny jeans. I can't be hiding. I Hey, listen, I was in a Levi's store. Accidentally, they handed me a pair of skinny jeans. I started getting them on. We almost called paramedics. Get that machine to pry these things out of me. I can't do this. So who is it that accuses you? And I want to tell you, in God's economy, the accuser loses. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And he accuses you at your heart. He'll do anything to stop you. Through the years, people will contact me to complain about my church. Members of my church will say, I saw one of your members smoking. I saw one of your members doing this. I saw your one of the members down on the street where the bars are in, 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 in Mobile. And, and I'm sitting there. And so here's what I told my church. I don't listen to them. I tell them that ain't none of your business. Sometimes I'll say, I'll defend them. And I say, I sent them down there. Now, I'm not justifying carnality in my church, but I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to stand up for you if you're my brother. Not even if you're wrong, but then you and I are going to have a talk. One man called me. He said, one of your church members in a motel with another woman. Now, he's not married to. He said, what would you do? I called him up. I said, what you doing there? That's what a shepherd does. That's what a pastor does. And so we all need each other in this. But listen to me. There will be accusations made to you, about you, and there'll be things said about you. Do not let you, here's what you do. You turn your eyes upon Jesus, and you remind yourself, you're going to go deeper. This is going to happen, and you're going to have to say, Lord, this is what you think of me, and this is all that matters. My barber has a guy, and I love my barber. He is a dear friend of mine, and has been so faithful to me through the years, I mean, I'm not saying he's got much to work with. I, he, I call him my miracle worker. And so he's, if you're whatever, you know, whatever. He's doing the best he can with what he's got. But he, he always has a special needs employee who helps him clean up and take care. And his name is JJ right now. And, and I, I love JJ. 
I went to see see my barber this week, and J.J. asked me first thing. He said, how's God doing? I said, J.J., he's always doing good, dude. He's always on his throne. How's God doing? One day he pulls me aside a couple years ago, and he says, says, Pastor, I need you to do something. He said, my my friend Bobby, like I knew him. I said, yeah, Bobby. He goes, yeah, he's been using some words that are real naughty. He said, would you? He said, he hands me a number. I said, what's this? He goes, that's his mom's cell phone. I said, what? What do you want me to do? He goes, I want you to call her and tell her that Bobby's using naughty language. I said, dude, what do you think my job is as a pastor? Well, that's exactly what he thought my job was. I said, I'm not here to narc out your friends (laughs) to their moms. 1 John 3.20 says, for whenever our heart condemns us, here's another verse to memorize, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. Oh, don't, the verse isn't over. God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. He knows everything. Third question, who will condemn me? Verse 34, so who is it that condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us. God is the ultimate judge of your life and my life. His son sits at his right hand. And and folks, get this. If we're going deeper, we've got to see this, especially in troubles, especially in crisis. We need to see him high and lifted up, exalted at the right hand of the Father. We need to say, turn to him as our hope, our joy. And, And also know this, the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for you. Have you ever been in a place where you didn't know how to pray? He, not only is he at the right hand of the Father, but the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit, according to this chapter of Romans chapter 8, ever lives to make intercession for us so that we are always having God the Father listening, God the Son pleading on our behalf, and God the Holy Spirit making sense out of the that we're praying down here. When I don't know what to pray, well, I'm afraid to pray because I may say the wrong thing. You will say the wrong thing. And there are times I've prayed and said, God, I want this, when that was not God's will. But he heard me and said, I'm going to give you what you really need. So prayer is not learning how to manipulate God. Prayer is trusting in Jesus Christ. Who will oppose me? Who will accuse me? Who will condemn me? Because all my sins were nailed to Jesus. I did jury duty a few years ago. I get called on jury duty for some reason often in Mobile. And uh, I got seated on a jury, and I watched, uh, watched an attorney who was the prosecutor. I mean, the stuff he told about this dude, I'm going, hang him high. This guy's really bad. Then the defense attorney gets up and makes one of the most powerful cases I've ever heard as to why this guy wasn't guilty. So I'm sitting on a jury going, you know, what a, what a powerful moment. Then it dawned on me that God is the ultimate judge of the universe, Right? And that the accuser is the prosecutor who says, hey, God, see Ed Litton? Ed Litton's this, and Ed Litton did that, and he had this thought in 1973, and he did this 20 minutes ago, and then he's done this, and he's got a whole list of a pattern of behavior and struggle in my life, and he's got all these things, and he's condemning and condemning and condemning, when finally the judge of the universe says, enough. And then the enemy, of course, sits down. Sitting next to me. By this time, I think, I'm done. I'm ruined, and my head's down, and all of a sudden, I heard the chair next to me push out, and my defense attorney rises and says, Your Honor, oh, holiness, almost everything the enemy said, well, not everything, but 
a lot that he said is true. And I'm thinking, I don't need this from my defense attorney. But he's always telling the truth. But there's evidence in this case that has not yet been heard. And he takes his hands and he holds them up. He says, see this hole in my hand? For everything he ever did wrong with his right hand, I was pierced through for his transgression. Evidence B, for everything as he holds up his left hand, everything, everything he ever did wrong with his left hand, it was pierced through. He takes off his shoes. He says, see these holes in my feet? For every step he ever took in the wrong direction, I was pierced through for his, his transgressions. For, he, says, he pulls back that beautiful mane of hair, and he, you see these lacerations of a crown of thorns for every nasty thought, every vindictive idea he's ever had. I bled over those things, and he lifts up his shirt to the horror of all that were in the courtroom. And he says, and I was pierced through for his transgression and went straight to my heart for everything in the wickedness of his heart. I have redeemed this man. You cannot try a man twice when I have already been tried, convicted, and condemned for him. Somebody shout me down. What a Savior. So who will condemn me? Paul then asks the last question. Who can separate me? Verse 35, who shall separate me for the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And I know Paul well enough to know he could have gone on and on. Friend, is there anything left for you to fear? Romans 8.37 says, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. We are supra-conquerors through Christ who loves us. John Piper says, a conqueror defeats his enemy, but the one who is more than a conqueror subjugates his enemy. A conqueror nullifies the purposes of his enemy. One who is more than a conqueror makes his enemy serve his purpose now, I'm going to add the word joyfully because I resisted the Lord for a long period of my life, but I want to tell you something. I joyfully came to the end of my stupidity, and I surrendered myself to him, and it's the greatest thing I've ever done. And, friend, I'm here to tell you amen. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I, I, argued, I argued with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.17 when I read that after my wife died. And I can share that story with you a little bit later, maybe tomorrow, but, but let me just simply say to you that in the darkness of my grief and suffering, I thought this is more than light and momentary. This is more than I can handle. But the reason it's light and momentary is because Paul yoked up with Jesus and Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's what Jesus gives you when you struggle and when you suffer. Jesus gives you himself. And that changes everything. I'm only alive today because he gave himself to me. In closing, I want to say this. Christianity is a thinking person's religion. I don't mean you have to have a PhD to understand Christianity. That's not what I mean. I'll tell you what I mean. You have to think. That's why the Bible says in Isaiah 1.18, come, let us reason. Come, literally, let us settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. In other words, 
D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if you're afraid, if you're a fearful person, you're just not thinking. If you're worried, you're just not thinking. Jesus said, don't worry, trust me. If you feel guilty, you're not thinking. He's removed your guilt. He's justified you. So what do we need to do? There's never been an hour in my lifetime that this nation and this world needed courageous Christians like it does right now. A man I dearly love, Ray Ortland, said, the perfect love of God makes heroic Christians. Your courage doesn't come from who you are. It comes from who he is and what he has done for you. So we've got nothing to lose and everything to gain by continuing to trust him. You want to go deeper? Let's go deeper. So whatever it is you're facing, are you willing to go deeper? Are you willing to put your backpack on? Let's go into the canyon. Are you willing to dive with him and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you? You'll be my oxygen. You'll be my strength. And when I think everything's falling apart and I can't go any further, I will trust in you. Lord Jesus, I pray for your precious children. I pray for Walk Church. Lord, I pray this word would sink deeply into our hearts and it would take us deep into you, Lord, that whenever we face troubles of various kinds, Lord, that we will trust in you. And more than just saying we trust you, but Lord, that we'll, we'll think for every crisis and every failure, for every fear, and everything we feel guilty about, everything that begs us to worry, that we'll think my, what a Savior. And all that he has done for me, bless his glorious name. This, this is a moment to worship him. Would you just stand? Would you just pour out your heart to him? Would you thank him for who he is? Would you bring him glory for all that he has done? In Jesus' name. Amen.